Good morning to you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We just read, or actually we just sung, I want to read for you. By faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. Says we will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. One of the reasons why we chose that very hymn is because I believe that's the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the heartbeat that comes through as I've been studying Philippians 1 that I hope will transfer to you in some way over the next couple of weeks. That is a resounding theme and that we do walk by faith in this life and our, we want to seek to glorify the Lord. In fact, the title of the message today is simply magnify Jesus. And I think you'll see that come out of verse 20 very clearly. In fact, today we're only going to be looking at the very end of verse 18, which probably belongs with verse 19, and uh, through verse 20. So really just two verses today. The Apostle Paul, we're going to be considering this theme really for me to live is Christ and to die is gain really over the next couple of weeks. Just looking at the few verses that come before it, and then taking one or two weeks to complete the section down to verse 26. For Paul, if he was asked, what is your supreme desire? It might be summed up in verse 21, but then if you wanted a little more background, you might go back to verse 20. His confident hope is that he would in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now and always, Christ would be exalted in his body whether he lives or whether he dies, that Christ would be magnified, that he would make much of Christ through his earthly ministry and through his life, no matter what happens to him. If it means death, so be it. If it means life, so be it. But that Christ would be magnified no matter which way things turn out. So let's read the text, and I'm going to begin back in verse 12 uh, to give us the fuller context and read through verse 21. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorium Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am an appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. In our text for today, yes, and I will rejoice. 
For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and for the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look once again into your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have ordained the corporate worship of your people, and that when we gather together on the day that you have prescribed the Lord's Day, that you visit us in a very special and unique way. You are gathered together with your people as we read your word, as we sing your word, as we pray your word, and even as the word is preached. We thank you that Christ is here among us even now. And Lord, we trust that you will pour out the Holy Spirit upon us to meet needs that no one else knows, that may be from deep down within us, concerns and weights and burdens that we might be carrying that we've shared with no one else but you. Lord, would you uniquely apply your word to each and every person this day? Lord, would you give us a greater determination to have a loose grip on the things of this world and to have, as it were, the eyes of eternity moving forward, that we might magnify Jesus no matter what our circumstances. Lord, we ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Well, we've talked about how this epistle is is one of Paul's more dear epistles. He's writing it to dear friends. The church was founded about a dozen years ago. Previously, he, he writes and calls them brethren more times than what is common in the other epistles. He actually uh, speaks of the theme of rejoicing and having joy in the Lord several times throughout this letter, 14 times. We've seen it a couple times. In fact, it's twice in verse 18 right here before us. But why was he so happy about these people. It is because of their partnership with him in the gospel. Having been saved, having been regenerated by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit in Philippi, they immediately ran to Paul to partner with him in his missionary endeavors. And so as he prays for them, he prays that their love would abound still more and more. That is, that it would overflow that they would be sincere, that they would be blameless before God, that they would seek to glorify God in all things. And then last week, we looked at verses 12 to 18, this paradox that the gospel advances even from a prison cell, something you would not expect to happen. When a man's down and behind bars, you would expect his work to stop, but not with Paul, because his very chains were a testimony to Christ, who his allegiance was to, even the soldiers and the heathen and and all in Rome had heard about Paul and became interested in his case over these two years. But then also the brethren received so much more encouragement as they heard about what was going on with Paul and how he was standing strong and he did not cower down, he did not water down his message. They received greater courage to speak the word without fear. He speaks that some are speaking with mixed motives. That doesn't concern Paul. If they're true to the basic gospel message, he says, whether in pretense or in truth in this, I rejoice that Christ is 
proclaimed. And so as we consider today, really this section, verses 12 to 26, is a section we'll spend a couple of, another couple of weeks on it. It's marked by progress, the progress of the gospel and the progress of the Philippian Christians. And so those are bookends in that section. For the Apostle Paul, suffering was a part of the Christian life. Suffering is a part of the path to the celestial city. There will be, to borrow from Bunyan's immortal pilgrim's progress, hills of difficulty, valley of the shadow of death. There will be difficult times. There will be times when we, because of our sin, go by the byway and we end up in Doubting Castle for a season. And then we need to remember the key of promise that locks, unlocks the chains so that we can come back to the narrow way to lead to the celestial city. Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And brethren, this is something that we continually need to learn need to instruct ourselves, don't buy into the lie, the lie out there, the prosperity gospel that God wants you fat, healthy, and wealthy, and that so much as a little sneeze is from the devil, and and to, you know, don't buy into that. That's a lie of the devil. The Lord uses these things to refine his people, to build true character, to make men become men with backbones of steel, to stand up in the face of those that would oppose the true gospel. Consider the Reformers as we're coming up on Reformation Day at the end of October, and our community group is studying the heroes of the Reformation, and it's very exciting. We began with John Wycliffe last time. But these men that stood up before councils, and it seemed like they were all by themselves, and yet they had a boldness because the boldness came from God, and they believed the message to be true. They would not waver. They would not cower away. And that's what we need today. Men who will not compromise. Men who will stand up and lead their families. Men who take the Christian life seriously. Men who will stand up to air and say, that's wrong. Chapter and verse, look. You're pulling out pages of the scriptures if you're saying homosexual marriage is okay. It's okay. Our whole cultural is, culture is embracing it. Always we have to do is just flow with the culture. And then we end up going down the streams that ultimately lead to a polluted sewer. If we will not stand up for the truth, who will? And here we have an example of the Apostle Paul standing up for the true gospel, the gospel of God's grace. And so, suffering is to be expected as a part of our lives. Some, when they're laid off from work, they realize there's going to be financial difficulties. Maybe a a surgery is necessary, or even a cancer is weakening the body, or some other malady. All of these things, we say, why? Why, Lord? And you know what? Pastors and counselors don't always have the exact answer. The secret things belong to the Lord. But one thing I know, God is faithful to his people. God is sovereign over these things, and he can be trusted. This life is but a vapor. This life is here today and gone tomorrow. If you're running around clinging on to every hour and every day that you have in this life, thinking that this is it, you've got it wrong. (laughs) You need to read the Holy Scriptures You need to study and meditate on the reality of heaven on the one hand and on hell on the other hand because 
these places are real. But we better jump into our text because I promised we would be more abbreviated today because of the heat. So two simple points. Verse, the end of 18 and 19, and then verse 20. Two reasons why Paul rejoices and why we should rejoice. Verse 19, rejoice because your ultimate deliverance is sure. Your ultimate deliverance is sure. Look with me again at it. In the end of verse 18, as I said, really goes with 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul here is speaking, I believe, of this future deliverance that will come. Really, what's going on here, and I didn't read verses 22 to 26, you can read this later, but there's this tension of life and death and this this heart struggle that Paul has is, is, yes, I want to go and I want to be with my Lord, but yet I want to be here and be useful to the church of Christ and to you in particular, O Philippian church. And, and, and there's this struggle and this heart struggle that flows through his pen. In fact, next week we'll see he's going back and forth between life and death and life as he's reasoning in his mind. Paul is hard-pressed to choose between two good things, the ongoing life of serving in the church, but then also dying a martyr's death and being ushered into the presence of the Lord. For he knows, and he has written in Second Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to what? To be present with the Lord. And that's why he argues later, this is so much better to be present with the Lord. But he knows to remain on, it's good for them. Now, Paul, in verse 12, as I said, that began this section, is talking about his circumstances in prison. He digresses on how the gospel continues to spread. He comes back to his own circumstances and what ultimately will take place through him and what his thinking is. And so the tense of the verbs move to future tense. That's why it says in verse 18, if Christ is proclaimed in this, I rejoice, present tense. Then he says, Yes, and I will yet rejoice, you could say. In other words, it's a future tense. I will yet rejoice. He says, for I know that is present tense, but then that this will turn out, these circumstances will turn out, future tense, um, for my deliverance. And then he would not be put to shame, future tense, and that Christ would be exalted. So four future tense verbs he puts here. He's looking to the future. And ultimately, what does it mean for him to be delivered? Is it the inheritance of heaven, or is it that he will be rescued from a Roman cell or house arrest? But Paul's foundation for rejoicing is that he knows that he will be vindicated before the heavenly court. The word that's used for deliverance here uh, is the word sozo. It's a word for salvation in the Bible. But it is used of deliverance and rescue and these types of things. But it's most often used of Paul as salvation from the power of sin on the one hand and from God's wrath on the other hand. For example, Romans 5.9, saved from the wrath, from God's wrath. And so what kind of deliverance is this speaking of? And much ink has been spilt amongst the commentators. Is it, and especially modern scholarship, that it's, he really has a great hope that he'll be released from this imprisonment. Of course, that's sort of a theme that we'll see next week in the verses 
Um, but really, it's the ultimate hope that he knows he will be vindicated before God. That's my position of eternal salvation. So the word for deliverance can be used of preservation. For example, in Acts 7, verse 25, the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. <clears throat> and so that's the, the word there, that they were saved from slavery in Egypt. So those that hold to the former position would claim verses such as that. But here, I think that Paul is saying that his assurance of deliverance is the kind described in the very last letter that he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, where he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. The word rescue the word is the word saved or delivered. The Lord will deliver me and bring me into his heavenly kingdom. Now he says here that in verse uh, 19, and I know that this, this will turn out in my deliverance, and then notice the means. It's dia in the original. It's a preposition through these things, your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. These two things united together are the means in which he believes his ultimate deliverance will come. Just as surely as he interceded and prayed for the Philippians, he begged them to intercede on his behalf. The apostle wasn't such, I'm an apostle, I don't really need your prayers. I mean, God's on my side. He never said that. He begged for their prayers, and he expected their prayers. And even here, he's saying the very means for his deliverance, ultimate deliverance, is that God is pleased to use their prayers and, of course, the provision of the Holy Spirit. Paul puts great importance on mutual intercession. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, you also joining, helping us through your prayers, he tells the church at Corinth as he describes difficult circumstances in that context. He puts them both together sometimes. For example, in Romans 15.30, Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. See how he unites the Spirit and prayers for him together in Romans. Paul never underestimated the need for prayer. He knew well the wicked forces that were out there trying to deter him, trying to get him off base, trying to distract him from what God has called him to do. Just turn back one page or two pages to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. As Paul wraps up this letter, he states, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. He states very clearly, he understands, it's a spiritual battle going on out there. But then look in verse 18 and 19. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. 
Paul here understands the absolute need for prayer. He's asking them to pray at all times for him. And for what? That boldness will be granted and that he might be able to utter the mystery of the gospel. It's not a Nancy Drew mystery. It is really the the mysteries that have been previously concealed that are now open and revealed, that take the Holy Spirit to understand. So when he says here um, in verse 19, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ, you might say, well, what does the word provision mean? Or if you have the ESV, it just simply says uh, the help of the Holy Spirit. And that might be a a suitable word, but there's more to this word than this. It indicates both a generous provision and the undergirding of strength. So you see, there's more to it than just the help, unless you've got a big view of what help looks like. It's the undergirding of strength. In fact, it's used in extra-biblical examples. It only occurs a couple times in the New Testament of making provision for a wife while a man is traveling away, making provision, all the provisions that are necessary. It's used, it was used in medical terminology as a ligament acts to support the rest of the structure. And so it speaks of the support of the Holy Spirit that was given to Paul, wedded together with their prayers. Now turn back to Job 13 with me. Job 13. Paul seems to be taking the words of Job here where he's suffering and blends them together with his own confidence. Uh, Despite the accusations of his friends, Job affirmed his innocence and his trust in God. And if you look at Job 13 towards the end of the chapter, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. This also will be what? My salvation. For a godless man may not come before his presence. Verse 18, behold now, I have prepared my case, and I know that I will be vindicated. Do you see what righteous Job is saying here? When I say righteous Job, he was vindicated before God. He had his sin. Um, but what's going on here is that his, his friends have just had the first round of all of their counsels. And in chapter 12 to 14, Job is answering them. And here he's answering them and specifically in verse, well, actually look up in verse 2. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. So he states just his, his status there. And then he, in verse 4, you are all worthless physicians. Oh, that you would be completely silent, and that would become your wisdom. Remember, the proverb says that even a fool, when he keeps his mouth quiet, is considered wise. And Job here is evoking that. If only you would just come here and be silent, I could think of you as being wise and beginning to enter in into my suffering and understanding of the situation. But no, they had so many opinions, and and they all went around, and this is Job's answer. But this idea, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He has become my salvation. I know that I will be vindicated. Totally, uh, to me, points very clearly to this. I think Paul has that in mind when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. I have this earnest expectation 
you know, whether life or death for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Well, what is your supreme goal in life? Look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I would not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now and always be exalted in my body. For Paul, he had this eager expectation and hope to what? Promote and magnify the glory of Christ. His supreme goal in life was to make much of Jesus, to magnify Jesus. That was his purpose. That's why he lived. And of course, he's looking to this vindication in the heavenly court. Christ will be exalted in my body. F.F. Bruce says in his commentary, the deep desire of Paul, really of this section, was the progress of the gospel, the perseverance of his converts, and the fulfillment of God's redeeming purposes through him. Now turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to look at this with me. Our New Testament scripture reading um, I chose because I think this really fits as he's talking about Christ being magnified through him, whether life or death. It's not as all Paul is saying this and he's never been persecuted in any way, shape, or form, right? This is a man that knows what persecution is. This is a man that was supernaturally preserved times without end, beyond what would be normal. Look with me again at this in verse 24. Well, he says, of course, he's defending his apostolic ministry. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as though insane. I far more and I far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. So he's saying that my apostolic ministry is evidenced by the persecution that I receive for the message. But then he says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Remember, he wants Christ magnified through his body, whether life or death. And so he takes those lashes, those chunks of steel and and bone on these, the the cat and nine tails that would dig into the back and literally rip the flesh from the victim. Thirty-nine times he endured this. This is a very scourging that Jesus received before going to the cross. So Paul somehow survived this five times and then three times beaten with rods. You might compare that to a gang with baseball bats or something like that. And just coming up and just, just boom, 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 boom. You know, he survived that. Once he was stoned. Now, just do, do victims usually survive stoning? I mean, when you read the Old Testament and the Pentateuch and it says, okay, the adulterer you shall bring out and the whole city shall come out and stone him. You know, just picture softball-sized stones from, you know, a couple hundred, couple thousand people. Typically, the victim does not survive. There's no allowance in the Pentateuch here. And if the victim is still alive after the whole city has stoned him, then cut off his head or, you know, there's none of that. The person died, but somehow Paul didn't. And and you can just imagine the, the extreme pain. But again, Paul... He wants Christ exalted through his body, whether by life or by death. 
Three times he shipwrecked, a night and a day he spent in the ocean on frequent journeys in dangers of rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers of the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. Now, what is that, five or six listing of dangers? You know, you think Paul needs to choose his neighborhoods better. I mean, he shouldn't go walking downtown, you know, in the middle of the night in the alleys or something. I mean, how, how does this happen to one person, you know, that's seeking to live a moral life? It's because Paul went to where they needed the gospel, and sometimes that meant physical persecution. Paul's great theme is that he wanted Christ to be magnified through his life through the words of the gospel, through the message. And if it meant his body was to be beaten, so be it. Christ is to be magnified. Oh, how we need to catch that desire, that earnest desire to glorify God in all things, and even if it means persecution. And so the question of the day is we consider these verses, why in the world would Paul suffer so much? Why would, it's one thing to be a Christian living in Iraq right now with ISIS all around you. You expect to be confronted. You expect to be persecuted. You might even expect to die. But for Paul, he could not not preach Christ. Do you see what I'm saying by that as I break the grammar rules? For Paul, it wasn't an option to not preach Christ. He had to preach Christ. Now, you would think after he's been through all of that that I just read, all right, you know, I've, I've been faithful. I mean, look at this. I got bruises, scars. He's probably hunched back. You know, who knows how Paul looked. I think it's time to retire and collect, you know, whatever, the God's apostolic retirement fund or something and go kick back on an island. Was that Paul's idea? No. That didn't even cross Paul's mind. You know, the idea, I'll just go back to Tarshish, and, you know, I've got a home there. My mother-in-law has a, some rented quarters. Nobody will know where I'm at. I can just check out. That wasn't an option for Paul. What was it that kept his drive alive and preaching Christ, even if it meant persecution and physical harm? You know, is this person crazy? No, the answer, as we said, is that he would magnify Jesus. To make much of Jesus. To secondly, rejoice because Christ will be exalted in your life and death. And we've already been talking about that. Paul has this earnest expectation and hope. The only other time this word earnest expectation occurs is in Romans 8.19. You'll be familiar with the text. This eager longing for all creation. The anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And that passage speaking about adoption, it's the only other time it occurs. And here, this idea, what's the measure of this deliverance? It's according to the earnest expectation and hope, again, wedded together, that he would not be put to shame, but that Christ would be magnified in him. What Paul is expecting here is ultimately the consummation, when he will be in the presence of the Lord, when he knows that, that, that all the other things of this life are now fading by the side and that he goes to be in the presence of the Lord. Having suffered all this intense 
persecution voluntarily, mind you. So the word translated eagerly expect means a straining forward um, uh, with an outstretched head. And it's the idea of turning aside from all other interests with the one pursuit to magnify Jesus Christ. Do you see how important these verses are before we just jump to Philippians 1.21, the verse that we all know, the verse that we all love, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain? How much more meaning will those words have, having understood Paul's thinking in verses 19 and 20? I hope that becomes more clear as we go through. Paul does not desire to magnify himself like sometimes we do. You know, maybe we're sharing something in a Bible study and and we're sharing something and we cast ourselves in a pretty good light, you know, to make ourselves look good and to make others think much of us. No. For Paul, I don't care what you think of me. I want you to I want you to see that Christ is being magnified in and through me. Any glory or any any way that the Lord is pleased to use us, we just reflect that right to Jesus. He gets all the glory. It's not about us. We're just vessels. We're vessels that are set apart for the Master's use. So he desires to make much of Jesus. He's a fool for Christ. He wants to make the name of Christ known. This word literally means to cause to be large of either physical or non-physical entities to to make great. And that's literally what it means, is to make great. And so when you think about the name of Christ and you think about making his name great, it's, it's sort of like just going around announcing Jesus Christ is a wonderful Savior. He's filled with compassion. He died for sinners. It's all what makes up the good news of Christ. In Acts 19, this word is used where they fell down upon them and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. That's, that's the idea here. And so Paul here says, and this is rather unexpected, we've been touching on it, how is it that Paul wants to magnify Christ? And he says it in the end of verse 20, whether by life or by death. It means not much to Paul which way. He wants to magnify Christ, that is clear, and it doesn't matter by what means. Paul is simply, excuse me, the instrument by which the greatness of Christ shines forth. And in fact, this is passive, it's something that God does. And by the way, when we say magnify God, we're not saying that God is so little that we can't see him, that we need a microscope, right, to magnify him. No, He's so great, like galaxies that will never, ever fully understand or find him out. Isn't that what the heartbeat of the psalmist was in Psalm 34, as we read that? Psalm 34, he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And notice, he delivered me from all of my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. We must magnify the Lord. 
do all for the glory of Christ. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do to do all for the glory of Christ in your marriage, in your workplace, and how you raise your children, do all for the glory of Christ. At Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything you do, child of God, either magnifies Christ or brings shame to his name. In Romans chapter 1, the chapter speaking of the depravity of the Gentiles, isn't that it's said very clearly in verse 21 that even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They did not magnify him as God. Do you see the difference there? So you were either magnifying Christ or you're magnifying yourself or some other thing or some shiny object or some idol somewhere rather than magnifying the Lord. So here, Paul can confidently say that dying would be better than living because death, he would be removed from his worldly troubles and he would see Christ face to face. As John says in 1 John, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. How can we apply this? I hope there's been some application. What is it that fills your thoughts Monday through Saturday, let's say? What are you thinking about? Is it academic achievements? Is it accolades, uh, academic awards, career success? There's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, right? It's when it's imbalanced and this becomes the thing that you want to magnify before the Lord, that it becomes lopsided. Maybe it's being perfectly healthy or fit. Maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's having the perfect marriage, and you have this idea in your brain that that the perfect marriage looks like this, and, and you're worshiping that image rather than being content with the marriage that you're in and seeking to make that marriage better by doing the hard work that is necessary of humbling yourself and fulfilling the biblical role of husband and wife. Maybe it's striving after financial security. If only I had an extra zero in the bank or two extra zeros, then I could relax. You know, maybe it's these types of things. These things get in the way of magnifying Christ. Have you missed a meal this past week, this past year? Have you missed a meal because you had to miss a meal sometime in your life? Maybe for some of you, maybe you could say once or twice. Have you ever had to run around naked? Because you had to. (laughs) The Lord's taking care of us. I mean, he's given us food. He's given us drink. He's given us clothing. In these things we shall be content, Paul says. Oh, how we need to be those that are content in our circumstances and want to make much of Christ through our circumstances. We mentioned this last week, but what is your motive? in the things you do? Is it about making much of Jesus or is it about making much of yourself? Examine your words. Examine your conversations with others. Examine how you're crafting conversations. And are we willing to magnify the Lord Jesus even in our death if that's what the Lord has? Just imagine 
You were in Iraq as one of their citizens, as a Christian, and ISIS is coming around to your village next. And you meditate on these verses. I'm going to magnify Christ in my body, even in my death. That you can kneel down before the person that is about to decapitate you, and that you can profess and give glory to God. And really, in some small way, if you got to the point to where Paul's mindset is, you could thank them because you will be ushered into the presence of God. I feel like I just want that to settle in for a minute. Just let it simmer for a minute in your mind as you think about that. Paul says, for momentary, light affliction. The things we deal with in this life are light because he says it is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Whether it's disease, whether it's sickness, whether it's a difficult marriage, whether it's living in a third world country, whether it's being hungry most of the time, whatever, these things are light compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. Again, how do you think the martyrs had such strength and boldness? It's because they believe these things. They preach these things to themselves. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, that wasn't just a cliche thing that you say that, that kind of says, well, yeah, I sometimes witness for Jesus or I do this or that. No, it really means what it says. You're willing to die for him. Oh, how we need this mindset as we end, what do you boast in? Paul says at the end of Galatians, I love this verse, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boast in the cross. Boast in what he's done for you on the cross, that he's paid for every one of your rotten, stinking, filthy, depraved sins, even the sins of this very day. My Savior has died for even that sin today. And in that I can rejoice. In that I can remember that I'm justified by faith in Him alone. Boast in the cross. Our great need, brothers and sisters, is the means of grace because we need to be reminded of these things. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, but my heart is so cold. We're singing by faith and I'm just, I'm, it, I'm, it's not making any sense to me. Oh, how we need to be among God's people, how we need to be in the corporate worship of God, to be under the ordinances, to be in his presence, which I believe is in a very supernatural way as God's people gather together on his appointed day. Your prayer closet is a wonderful place, and I hope you visit it daily, but it does not substitute the gathering of God's people on the Lord's day. I'll end with this. We must depend on one another's prayers and the provision of the Spirit to have boldness in this life. And if you're outside of Christ, how I pray that you will turn to Him. You don't know anything about living for Christ because you're living for yourself. And you need to see that that will land you in hell. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the provision of Christ.
We thank you for Jesus who died for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that we can magnify him, and that's the great desire that we have as your children. Lord, help us to do that better. Help us to understand how to do that, to always be a disciple, to learn these things from your word. Lord, magnify these truths in our own heart that we might faithfully instruct our children who desperately need your gospel. Help us, Lord, to repeatedly preach the gospel to our young ones. Have mercy, Lord, on their hardened hearts. May we not be an occasion unto the hardening of the hearts of our own children. Forgive us when that has been the case. But Lord, we know that you are mighty to save, and we pray that you would save them in due time. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to even now participate in the Lord's table and to even witness Christian baptism. Lord, we find this a very special Lord's Day in which both ordinances can be observed and and both strengthen our faith as we remember what Christ has done for us, the bread and the cup, and his even present intercession for us. And Lord, as we see the profession of faith and through baptism, that we are so encouraged that you are a God who continues to save, and even among us, we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.